Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. I am your host, Dave Wakeman. Today's episode is brought to you by my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. To find out how you can partner with Booking Protect to deliver your customers and your buyers a better buying experience, world-class customer service, and how you and your organization can create a brand new stream of revenue, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Once again, that's www.bookingprotect.com, the global leaders in refund protection. My guest today is Robin Cantrell Finnick. He is with the Association for Cultural Enterprises in the UK, and he is a listener of the podcast. And so when I reached out to him to say, hey, Robin, do you want to be on the podcast? He was like, oh my God, yes. He's like, but I don't know what I'm going to talk about. Um, But don't worry, we found a lot to talk about because his focus is really on monetization and helping cultural organizations figure out how to make more money, which as any regular listener of the podcast knows, that's sort of my gig. Um, We talked about all kinds of different stuff about tickets, right? Um, How to sell tickets, uh, how to monetize an event, uh, the customer experience, marketing. Um, We talked about the role of funding and cultural funding in the in the UK and how um, budget cuts and the financial crisis have impacted that and how it's had to make um, create an environment where people had to rethink what they're doing um, and their approach to monetization in their organizations we talked about um, some of the challenges in from a mental standpoint of nonprofits uh, we talked about plugging the gap funding gap we talked about accessibility of, of the arts for people which is something that we don't necessarily ever really hear about in the states we talked about content we talked about uh, upselling we talked about um, different organizations and how smaller organizations are going to approach these challenges differently than bigger organizations. I mean, we talked about a ton, a ton, a ton of stuff that had to do with monetization and we put some really like specific action items on it and some specific talking points around it so that anybody that's listening, no matter if where in the world you're listening from or what size or type of organization you're in, you can probably steal some of these ideas and make them your own. So I think this is a really fun and great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so here's my conversation with Robin. I want to welcome Robin Cantrell Fennick. To the Business on Podcast, Robin, how's it going? Great. Having a, a, a really great uh, busy week here, launching some new stuff that I'll talk to you about, I've no doubt. So, yeah, I'm a busy man, but uh, having a good time. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, no, this is this is going to be awesome. I, um, I'm really excited about some of the stuff you're working on. And so I think that this is going to be hopefully very interesting to a lot of people that would listen. Um, let's start out with, like, the big thing, right, which I brought up, was the Trading for Cultural Skills Academy that helps – that you're helping people focus on their commercialization outcomes. And as I was mentioning to you when we were starting, when we were uh, talking before we started recording, if that's not on brand for me, I don't know what is. So, <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the program? Yeah, so the Academy is, is a new thing that is uh, being funded by um, the Arts Council of England uh, in the UK. We're still uh, very fortunate in the UK that we have a lot of uh, public subsidy behind uh, even commercialization of uh, the arts. So we've got this program, which is going to run for three or four years, um, and it is designed uh, to help organizations be 
more resilient, more financially independent, um, to plug some of the gaps that are occurring in their funding um, by looking at trading and uh, earned income and commercialization. And these are skills which have not been uh, at the forefront of uh, uh, cultural organizations in the UK and Europe um, for, for really quite some time and in some cases, if ever. So this is really about trying to upskill um, an entire sector uh, to help them cope with uh, the, the changes in uh, in how art and culture and heritage are funded. Because, you know, if I may, Dave, you know, it, it just helps to to step back and and take a really high level view of, of what's happened in the UK because it's a familiar story in places across the, the world. But we saw two really big events, um, the credit crunch of 2008 um, and then, dare I say it, the Brexit vote of 2016. Uh, and they had two really significant effects on the cultural sector. The credit crunch meant that overnight the government had less money, less money to hand out in public subsidy. Um, and then the Brexit vote meant that overnight um, our currency dropped in value by about 20% against most other currencies and has never recovered back to where it was. So on the one hand, we've got less public subsidy flowing around. But on the other hand, inbound tourism is up because our currency is devalued. Staycationing is up because our currency is devalued. Your US dollar gets you more when you come over here. My weak pound tempts me to stay at home. Um, and so organizations are increasingly looking to visitors to plug the gap in their income. And that's what we're trying to help them do. Yeah. And when you talk about gaps, right, because this is helpful to probably the audience, what are some of the gaps that you have identified as being uh, having the most uh, opportunity in them, but also being the most ne uh, necessary for, for, for some help? Yes, yeah, so when it comes to the gaps, I mean, it, it might help you if I kind of explain a little bit more about who we deal with. So we're 40 years old. We have two types of members, um, so-called not-for-profit heritage and cultural organizations, so museums and galleries and theaters. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the phrase not-for-profit, but we can we can come on to that. Well, why um, is that? Let's, let's, let me ask you that before we even go further. Why don't you like the well, not-for-profit tag? I, it's in, it's in part a reflection of how the world around us has changed. And I think the phrase not for profit um, for me is such an absolute statement that we, we are absolutely not interested in making a profit. And, and that is not a reflection of the reality of museums, galleries, theatres, cultural organisations today. You, you have to have some form of profit-making uh, enterprise in your organisation um, in order to be financially resilient, just to be around, but also to be financially independent. So if you don't want to be dependent uh, on the varying demands of uh, public funders, private funders, and so on, you want to be able to maintain your organization's independence, you need to be generating uh, higher levels of earned income. So uh, I like to think of organizations being about more than profit mm -hmm. rather than not-for-profit. Um, and indeed, the, the term that uh, we at the Association for Cultural Enterprises use is cultural enterprises. These are organizations who are using things like retail, venue hire, image licensing, catering, food and beverage, ticketing, publishing experiences, this whole world toolkit of ways of generating independent earned income, um, which are increasingly essential. So when we say not for profit, I think that devalues the work of the people in the organization who are actually generating 
call it what you like call it a surplus if that makes you know if that makes you feel better um but those people who are generating essential income for the organization no that's a great answer and i ask it because here in the states i often push back against the idea of nonprofit meaning like you can kind of be haphazard in the way that you manage or grow or just deal with your business but i was like when to me and this is maybe a reflection of living in the states um the people who are working in these nonprofit organizations, be that if they're in cultural enterprises, which is a really great term, or just n- traditional nonprofits as you would expect them to be, um, you actually have, a re- to me, a responsibility to be even better managers and have even more fiduciary responsibility of what you're doing because the organization that you're leading and that you're working for and that you're trying to make resilient in your term is vital, right? And as like, your subsidies go down, right? And as the government has less money to spend and as people are struggling more and more, these things that you know, you're know you doing or like a lot of other organizations are doing are more important than ever before. The arts in a time of great turmoil is more important than ever before, right? And so I, I, I love the idea that you're, you're promoting. I mean, I think it's great. You're so right. And it's, it's also um, a, a, an area in which organizations which receive public funding um, can kind of plug the gap. There is a gap. There's, you know, in the UK, organizations have been on uh, standstill funding for a decade or more. Many organizations have seen real-term cuts. So um, if you're an organization that receives funding from only national government, you've probably been on standstill for a decade. If you're an organization that receives money from local government, that money's probably gone or is going soon. Um, And so when you look at all these other forms of earned income, together with something like ticketing, you have an opportunity to plug the gap. Now, you know, when we talk about things like commercial ticketing, um, we talk about, you know, you follow the river, you go where the flow goes and um, you go where demand goes and you maximize the value of every seat um, and use tactics like dynamic pricing and so on to to maximize your revenues. Now, there absolutely is a place for that in uh, publicly funded, subsidized organizations. There totally is a place for that. But there is a balancing act that publicly funded organizations have to do, which commercial organizations don't have to do. So if you're in a commercial organization, um, you know, my uh, my colleagues at uh, Baker Richards talk about um, operating on the threshold of pain. So you are you are setting your ticket prices um, at the absolute maximum that you feel uh, that your buyers can bear um, before they before they will actually stop in a publicly subsidized organization you have you generally have a broader responsibility you know you are you will have some kind of need to be accessible um to uh, people at all price points um because hey look there's a simple principle here if i as a taxpayer am paying for publicly subsidized art culture heritage and so on i should be able to afford to access it i should be able to get in i'm paying for it to exist in the first place um and so that can have a capping effect a limiting effect on what you can do with ticketing, although there is a, a, a huge amount of, of scope and we're seeing some really interesting stuff. But if you're limited in what you can do with ticket price, then giving people the option of topping up their visit with some ancillary spend, with food and beverage spend, with uh, a visit to a shop, is a really great way of uh, helping to plug that gap. So 
you know, we do some work with the um, Association of uh, Visitor Experiences and Attractions in Ireland. Um, and uh, they did a, a great exercise a couple of years ago where they found that um, for uh, across the country, the national average was a ticket price cost you 10 euros 50. Um, but on top of that, on average, visitors were spending five euros per ticket in the shop and four euros in food and beverage in catering. So they're spending almost as much as the face value of the ticket again in ancillary spend. And and this comes back to a kind of question that whether you're a publicly funded organization or not, that we all ask ourselves all the time is, is you know, what revenue are you leaving on the table? And why are you leaving that revenue on the table if you are? Um, and for organizations which are publicly funded, growing ancillary spend, growing retail, growing food and beverage, doing these things well is a great way of supplementing the gap in your income that can be caused through reductions in public funding and or having to cap your ticket prices. Yeah. At the danger of sounding like a broken record, the example you gave from Ireland where there's, the ticket was 10.50 euros, mm. $5 in the shop and $4 on food and beverage uh, harkens back to when I started out in nightclubs. And my my vision was always that like if I get you in the door, I could offer you other things that would make you spend more than you set out to spend. You'd have a better time. You'd be grateful that I gave you these opportunities, and you'd be likely to come back. And that's what this example really, really shows. It's it's just it's incredibly smart. And I think the gap, the trap that people fall into a lot of times when they're thinking about their monetization issues is that they are limited in the ways that people will spend money at their venue. Um, I was at Intix in January and I sat on a panel and I still applaud myself for my um, great uh, um, restraint when somebody goes on the panel with me and said, <laughs> oh, you know, like you, we're really limited in the way that we can generate money. And I said, you're not, you're wrong. And I, and I held myself from jumping over and, and throttling the person. Um, <laughs> This is a great guy. He's been on the podcast, so it's not, it's not a, it wasn't, it wasn't that. But I think you know, it's if you are wise, right? If you say, "Hey, look, I want to make sure that as many people have access to a show or to a cultural event as possible," you can design your monetization scheme in a manner that gives that touches people at all economic levels, right? Because there's people who are going to want a highly customized experience, right? And maybe there's like tours or backstage access or like these crazy things like you, I mean, you're only limited by your uh, creativity that you can ju- use to fill tremendous gaps. So, I mean, that's why I was, re- I'm really excited to hear about this program because I know that there's just tons and tons and tons of ways that um, you can monetize. And so, and I really love this threshold of pain thing because, but um, Baker Richards, those guys are awesome. I have I've had the opportunity to, uh, to hang out and chat with them many times before. Yeah. They're, they're like the flip yeah. side of me. <laughs> They're on the they're, they're the English <laughs> English side of me, probably a little bit more pro, a little pro, more proper than me, but that's okay. It's great. <laughs> and so how yeah, great. and how so so these programs and the way you you frame the monetization is awesome. So how do how do you deliver these these ideas to people, right? Because I know that's a big part of what you're working on. It's absolutely a big part of what we're working on, and and part of what we're trying to overcome is some things which are cultural. So. 
For example, if you take the subject of retail um, here in the UK, museums have been doing retail for um, decades. You know, there's a, the, the, the great sort of um, uh, thing that you, uh, you exit through the gift shop. Um, and that's actually not strictly true in the vast majority of uh, museums and buildings. And uh, I saw a great report from uh, the U.S. Museum Stores Association, which said that just 17 percent of museums actually require people to exit through the gift shop. But nonetheless, museums have been doing retail and have been doing it well for years. Um, Theatres have been doing high volume, rapid delivery, food and beverage uh, for intervals, for example, really well for years. In the UK, you know, I've, I've got a background in mid-scale producing theatre. Um, the I can't tell you, I should be able to tell you, but I can't tell you the amount of money that we made off ice cream. You know, uh, if I just prayed to the ice cream gods every time I had a uh, uh, an income gap and they delivered. Um, but on the other hand, museums have not always been so strong on food and beverage. So theatres don't do retail. Museums don't do food and beverage uh, so well. Um, across the sector, there's scope for improving venue hire and filming rights and licensing and so on. So what we're doing with the online academy is saying we have uh, an opportunity here to give you two to three hours of learning. And that's structured learning where um, you go online, you walked through video presentation, like having an instructor in front of you. Um, and then that's backed up by experiential learning. So um, you apply what you've learned uh, in your workplace. But it's also then supplemented by things like podcast episodes, uh, downloads and uh, access to online groups and so on. And that's about giving you uh, a way in, uh, an opener, looking at a new perspective and the practical tools necessary to get started. And then, of course, we can back that up with we can recommend uh, consultants from our uh, members. We can uh, link you into a real world training day, um, our big conference that we do once a year, the Cultural Enterprises Conference. There are routes from the online training through um, into deeper real world learning. But so often what is missing is the knowledge to get started. You know, you could go to so many theatres in the country and they will say, of course, there's an opportunity for retail. But we haven't got a clue where we start. Um, and so that's uh, with the academy. That's what we're trying to do is, is get people going. You know, I've got a, a report in front of me that the ticketing uh, company Spectrix just produced the Spectrix Insights report for 2019 um, that, that really kind of sums up the opportunity um, here. So they uh, have looked at all of their ticket sales over the last year and have said that uh, on average, their organizations achieve a 2.3% upsell rate on the phone or 4.1% upsell rate online. Now, there's a couple of things in those numbers. One, the internet selling better than people. So <laughs> there's a there's a real kind of opportunity there to, uh, to, to uh, upskill people in being better at selling on the phone because, you know, it, my goodness, if you can't sell better when you're actually talking to the person in front of you and having a conversation, then there's something wrong there, right? You know, yes, if, absolutely. If our, <laughs> if our websites are selling better than, than, than our people. But the other big number here is that 43% of organizations make upsell, uh, upselling supplementary items available to customers. So the majority of theaters in Spectrix's customer base are still not even attempting to upsell you a product at the point that you purchase a ticket at all. Right. And that kind of points to there's a real cultural issue here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what we're trying to kind of help plug with the, with the online academy. 
and you brought up an interesting point. Number one, there's podcasts that would be a part of these things. So hopefully, the, I'm sure this one will now be included in the training course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that. But you, you talked about people just not understanding how to get started. And that was one of the things I uncovered this year at Intakes. Like, I, I guess I had been just. Um, I'll place the blame on my own ignorance of not paying attention to that. It's just not understanding how to start change, right? And understanding, and I'm going to show you my hands, but everybody can't see them. But imagine my hands are a long way apart. And there's like 10 steps in between where you are and where you need to get. And it seems like there's just a huge gap, right? And so the, the big opportunity, and I think, and I'm going to ask you this as well, is get helping people see how to take the first step. Because if you can get somebody to take the first step, then it becomes more likely they'll take the second step. Because I think a lot of organizations, and here's where the question is, feel like they have to go from one to 10 right away and that there's no room to take those middle steps because they feel like they're so far behind. How do you help organizations understand that, hey, start where you are and you take the steps in a logical order and that you're going to gain momentum as you go forward and that like don't be afraid of change. Absolutely. And 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 incremental success is yeah, incremental success is essential um, here. So uh, the first step in terms of moving into a new space. So if you're an organization that doesn't currently do uh, venue hire or you're an organization that doesn't, doesn't currently do retail or publishing, you have to get your governance on board. You know, you have to literally get your board on board. Um, and that is about we can furnish people with resources that say, here are the successes, here are the returns on investment, um, and here are the skills necessary. Um, so the, we're focused on helping people with the skills, but we have all the other information as well. And if you look at things like um, some examples spring to mind. So the Yorkshire Dales National Park in Britain is everything you'd expect from a national park. It's a big, wide open space that's uh, great to visit and people go there um, and either rest and relax or they go there and they do exercise and sports and so on. And the Yorkshire Dales National Park uh, won an award, won one of our best product awards this year for their branded sportswear range. You know, they had a conversation internally where they said there was a huge number of people coming to our national park for sporting purposes. And currently they're wearing the big sports brands, you know, they're wearing the Adidas, the Nike, the whoever. But actually we have an opportunity here to create some brand loyalty with us um, and to create a, a literal souvenir. So, you know, we use, the, we use the word souvenir a lot. We throw that word around a lot. What does it literally translate to? A memory. It's about extending the visit. Um, and that's what all attractions are trying to do all the time is to extend the visit, deepen the relationship. And retail, for example, is one of those areas where there's a real opportunity to do that. And so it starts, you can absolutely start small. You can start with a minimum viable product. You do not have to launch in with e-commerce and point of sale uh, in person. You can start with a small product offer. You don't even have to bespoke. One of the courses that we're going to be launching uh, in the next few months is about bespoke versus non-bespoke, and there are arguments for both. Um, but it's about getting your visitors into the habit of understanding that there is something they can do here that extends their visit. So if you have not previously done, if you've not previously had a catering offer, if you've not previously had a shop, uh, first of all, getting visitors into the uh, expectation that that is there. Um, but uh, no, you most certainly don't have to go from naught to 100 product lines uh, in a couple of weeks. You know, this is about incremental growth 
uh, delivering on results, the bigger your uh, return on investment in one year, the bigger it will be the next year, so long as you're growing your audience numbers, your visitor numbers. And certainly in the UK at the moment, we're seeing, you know, the largest visitor attractions are growing visitor numbers by 8% year on year. There is an ever-expanding market for uh, additional ancillary earned income. Yeah, no, I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, 8%, right? If you told, I think if you made somebody a promise, you said, look, if I can get you to just take one or two actions that are pretty, you know, they're not even the biggest actions you take. And I can get you, you know, even 4%, right? We'll cut it in half. I would think that that would be a, fair, a pretty fair deal. And, you know, and it's, it's one of those things that I, I try to emphasize a lot is that you, you need to start small, right? You said the idea of the Yorkshire Dale National Park offering up, you know, having a souvenir and a memory. The memory idea is really stuck in my head because I often feel that we do a terrible job in sports and entertainment and the arts, in most cases, of recognizing that people are not necessarily buying into these events and these attractions and these things for tangible reasons. People are buying all this stuff and then visiting and enjoying these things for intangible reasons. And so this selling a memory, something that stimulates the memory is just, it's just wise because, you know, if I want to just watch a game, right, I can watch it on TV, but I can't get the experience of going, of being there together. It's the same with the theater, right? It's my, um, I went to see the producers when it was on Broadway, I think four times while I was there. And it was like, it was all about the people around me and the specific performance. And it was the emotional thing. And it was like one time I sat in the first row and I was like dying laughing and you could tell the performers were playing to me. Right. That's a memory I have. Right. And so like the cast recording that I bought was totally worth the 20 bucks because then I remember it every time. And I think this memory thing is something that we have to highlight more in your experience, because I know you have a background in working, you know, both now at the, you know, where you're trying to teach people about monetization, but where you were actually responsible for taking mm. in marketing before. How do you use all these emotional cues and all these emotional um, connections to make sure that you, you know, you build customers, right? So that you can get people to come back. So you get them to invest in you, right? Not, not just on a show by show basis, but as an organization. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, 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 the loyalty game, if we want to call it that, uh, has really kind of risen to the fore over the last few years. Um, people are starting to understand the lifetime value of a customer. They're starting to understand, uh, not starting to, but getting better at understanding uh, the importance of customer experience and seeing the whole customer. Um, and and that, there's, there's been a real kind of explosion in that uh, uh, in the UK um, with uh, a couple of big organizations, um, particularly consulting organizations, kind of, kind of uh, helping us out. Look, uh, a positive customer experience equals revenue. I mean, it is it is it is as as as, as blunt as that. Um, if we are looking at the the costs of recruiting a new customer versus the cost of getting an existing customer back, it's well established um, that the costs of, of of getting in a new customer are vastly greater than the costs of of getting an existing customer back. Um, and what we're trying to do here is look at the uh, the the whole person their, their needs. Um, and how can we ensure that um, once they've stepped off our premises, once they've stepped off away from our attraction, that we've left them with something that just leaves them with a lingering sense that either they want to come back for their own benefit 
or even better still that they've had such a good time that they want to bring their friends you know they've got that sense that they're onto something that their friends don't know um and and you can be the person to introduce your friends to this fantastic thing so certainly when i was thinking about my uh, time in theater that was what we were trying to do all the time we were trying to be um uh to some extent the best kept secret you know we wanted to create a sense that you were part of a community of people who knew something uh, uh that that your friends didn't um and that if you uh, brought your friends along you'd be rewarded not necessarily financially but certainly emotionally uh, for that the other thing I'd just like to to kind of say in terms of seeing the the whole person um, is is there's a real kind of technical gap at the moment. There's a data gap um, for a lot of organisations where um, they've been focusing on ticketing um, and their ticketing systems to give them the the whole view of the customer. And actually, when organisations get better at doing some of these other things, catering, food and beverage, retail, and so on. At the moment, there's a really big gap um, for most organizations because we don't have those linkages between ticketing and the EPOS system, the you know the cash register in the cafe or shop or the online shop. Um, there, was, there are some standout exceptions to that. Tessitura has some integrations with uh, Shopify. Page and Base has an EPOS system, but most don't. And so there is a real blind spot in terms of seeing the, the whole visitor. You, you, most organizations cannot connect the data they're getting from their ticketing system to the data they're getting from their sales systems um, in, in shops and food and, and beverage. And again, that's a missed opportunity. We are missing out on valuable data that tells us about the needs, wants and desires of our, our customers. Um, and there are a couple of organizations that are trying to uh, do work now to, to plug that gap. But, but you know, uh, my sort of cry out to all of these vendors at the moment is we're creating a real blind spot here. Um, in terms of uh, visitors to cultural attractions uh, that we really need to fix. Um, and uh, at the moment, we can tell you what's happening with the money. Um, I can tell you how many of my visitors uh, are spending additional spend with me. I can't necessarily tell you what they're buying. And in the absence uh, of that information and being able to link that to ticket purchasing behavior, um, I, I'm uh, less able to predict the interests and desires and motivations of my customers than I otherwise would be able to. So we've, we've, we've got to plug that gap over the next few years. Yeah, and that's it's an interesting point because you talked about, you just said data gap. And I know that for far too many people, the idea that they need more and more and more and more and more and more data to make effective decisions, I think is wrong, right? Because hmm. the thing is, is as you just laid out, there's a gap between what your ticketing system has for you and what all the other sources of revenue have. So this data that you, I mean, it's great to have it, but I think that it, it's often viewed as some sort of, um, uh, you know, home run, you know, home run ball, or it's like, you know, it's like going to mm. be like a, a magic bullet, right. To, to say, to save the organization. And it's not, um, and knowing that there's a gap between the, the, what the technologies can do and what the venues need no, and knowing there's not really a perfect solution right now, how do you help people understand how to pull all of these things together? Are there some tools that you use and you offer or suggest to people that help them figure out how to tie the data from the tickets and the other uh, revenue streams together? Um, or is there, or is it kind of, is it really just like a, a huge gap or is there like some tricks? Because, and I'm curious because I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I have some ideas, but I don't know the answer. 
So I, you know, I, I wish I had a silver bullet and I'm reminded of, uh, I think it's uh, the president of TRG who says, you know, look, data don't, do, data doesn't do, people do. Um, and at the moment, uh, most of the people that I'm working with uh, are reliant on pulling together information from disparate data sources to find the insights that they can to mine them through, uh, be that through systems like uh, Tableau or whatever it may be. Um, but there is no magic solution uh, that I'm aware of at the moment that pulls together those those disparate data sources. I, I was um, I was hoping that there was a different answer, but I sort of assumed that that was the case. <laughs> um, and that's like I mean, and I think that sort of highlights one of the things that I bring up a lot, which is you need to own your platform, right? Because I think, um, and by that I mean. I tell people, no matter if I'm working in sports or if I'm working in you know, B2B sales or with nonprofits or cultural enterprises, I go, you have to have an asset that you control. Yeah. And this is, more, this is probably a marketing question for you is you know, what tools do organizations have that they aren't using properly? For me, I always um, – I know Kirk Bentley from Wordfly has been on the podcast before and Kirk's a good friend of mine because um, we're both from Seattle – and he talks about the need for email. I like email a lot. I also like my website a lot. And I use both my website and email to drive a lot of people to things that I am want them to be aware of. Also, this podcast, right? You know, what are there tools that people are using or that they have access to that they are not using well that could, you know, number one, help them market more effectively, um, monetize more effectively, and... Um, you know, and market more effectively, monetize more effectively, and you know maybe help bridge the gap a little bit. And knowing it's not completely possible. Yeah. So, and I've uh, got to say, I lost you uh, for a moment there, Dave. But I yeah. think I got your question. Um, and uh, you know, yeah, I've previously been responsible for marketing and what we called audience services, so uh, sales and so on, uh, in a mid-scale theatre. So. Mid-scale in the UK context, we're talking about you know somewhere between 400 and 1,000 seats, um, and that was uh, a, the, the way that we looked at it was that the ticket purchasing point um, was the, the 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 most essential uh, point in our journey. So that was the data collection point. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what made things like email. You're absolutely right, uh, possible but also allowed us to do things like uh, Facebook custom audience marketing and so on. Um, so we're trying to create this kind of halo effect around the customer. So yes, you're getting targeted emails. Mm-hmm. Um, you are uh, going to see relevant social media adverts, um, but also things like your experience at the venue. So one of my favorite tactics to deploy was the note on the seat the welcome note on the seat that says you know we have noticed that this is your first time here we want you to have a a great experience please talk to us about your needs uh and and you know those notes started all sorts of conversations with front of house staff um and of course your people are an enormous resource so it's about creating the kind of channels where your people feel able to uh, report back the conversations that they're having so that you can turn that into management insights so but it all it all starts with um getting that customer in you know and and building up a profile of them either from their purchasing behaviors or from what their uh, their ticket purchasing behaviors their ancillary purchasing behaviors or what they're telling you in the conversations that you're having um and yeah you know if i could show you the amount of time that we we spent on straightforward things like tagging 
um, uh, in our CRM to help us to build a picture of a customer's interest based on uh, automatically building up a picture of what they were doing, right. but also critically the conversations we were having, uh, the, the the value that I placed on that because theatre, certainly theatre, but all cultural organisations are about uh, the relationship with the customer, the relationship with the visitor that can spark all manner of unexpected consequences and i have uh, never forgotten um at the theater the conversation that was had between a really junior member of our front of house team with a patron of ours um which led to a fifteen thousand pound donation and that was all about you know just the importance of the theater in their life uh early stage career and they weren't even trying it was not a fundraising conversation um but down the line, it triggered uh, a really significant donation. Um, and, it's, that's, and recording that sort of information in your CRM allows you to build those relationships, allows you to make those moments happen. Yeah, number, there's two things there in that answer. The, number one is like, you've been hanging out with my friend Martin from Activity Stream a lot with the magic moments, <laughs> it sounds like. Um, but number two was the idea that I think we always have to keep in mind that no matter how far technology advances, no matter what goes on, the most powerful thing that can happen is the relationship. And no matter what goes on, it's always going to be about people helping and working with and providing value and creating connections with other people. And you can't outsource that. There's no amount of data that's going to solve that problem. What the data does is it provides you an opportunity to, like you said, you can recognize somebody has not done has done something before or not done something before, or you can have a better conversation with them. And I, and I think the more people recognize that data is a tool to help you be a better person or have a more thoughtful conversation, um, the better the people will become at using their data. At least that's my perspective. I totally agree. And the um, where personal conversations come in. Um, most powerfully in terms of cultural enterprises, uh, is it's about shaping the offer. So, you know, we run an annual campaign every year along with the Museum Stores Association in the US and and our counterparts in Australia and New Zealand, um, which is all about, uh, it's called Museum Shop Sunday. And um, it happens on the Sunday between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And it's all about encouraging people into museum shops. In the UK, we use the hashtag shop unique, which sums up the whole kind of offer of what a museum shop is. It is the place where you can go to find the unique product, the product from a designer maker, the product that is different to what you will find on the high street. Um, It's the same with the catering offer, that it will be uh, local perhaps or organic or with a twist, with some link to the venue that tells a story. You will find something in a cultural enterprise which is not the norm. It's not the, the, the regularly churned out high street product. It's not the number one hit you'll find on Amazon. It is something different. Um, and the, the, the only real way to create really inspired, curated, different cultural enterprises where people want to spend money is to have that relationship with your customer, to have those conversations and to be in the head of uh, the various people who cross your threshold. Well, I don't know if I could say that really any better myself. Relationships, connections, stories, being in people's head. I mean, if if that's not really what um, revenue and marketing and sales is all about, I don't know what is. Um, Robin, where can people find you on the internet? 
So uh, the place to go is culturalenterprises.academy to see our new online academy. And there are links to all the other good things we do from there. And my Twitter account is uh, Robin Combs, C-O-M-M-S. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you again for doing this. Um, yeah, I think people are going to find a lot here of value. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks for having me. I want to thank my guest today, Robin Cantrell Fennick, for taking the time to speak to me from Among the Business of Fun about all things monetization, which you know I love. If you want to find out what I'm up to, you can visit me on my website. It's www.davewakeman.com, where you can find my blog. Um, you can find all kinds of stuff. Uh, somewhere in the next couple of days, there will be a calendar that appears. And I'll tell you all about all my travels all over the world. So it'll be very exciting. You'll be able to keep up with me. Uh, you'll be able to more readily know where I'm going to be. It'll be great. Um, as always... I'd love it if you'd send me an email. Let me know what you think about the podcast. Suggest guests. Um, tell me what you like, what you didn't like. You can send me that email by, by using my name, Dave, at DaveWakeman.com. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at David Wakeman. Um, unfortunately, somebody has the at Dave Wakeman Twitter handle. If you know this person, let them know. I need it because I don't think the guy's tweeted since 2014. It's almost six years. I tweet every day. Come on. Get it for me, guys. Um, if you like what I'm doing with the podcast, I'd love it if you do me a favor and you would share it with one of your colleagues, a friend, uh, associate, anybody you think that would benefit from this conversation or any of the other ones that I've done recently with great guests over the last year, like Tony Knopp, uh, Patrick Ryan, Lauren Teague, um, Laura Fragoso, um, all these great conversations. Share one of them. You know, that's how I continue to grow the podcast and make sure that I can continue to deliver great content like this to you. Um, if you're also so inclined, I'd love it if you'd become a subscriber. We're on most of the major podcast platforms right now, Google Play, iTunes, uh, Stitcher, all over the place. Um, and one more step, rate and review the podcast. It helps make people understand that this podcast is valuable and worth their attention. As always, I want to thank my friends at Booking Protect, the global leaders in refund protection. Um, if you want to find out how you can partner with Booking Protect to deliver a better buying experience with a lot more customization, um, have access to better data, um, and create a new revenue stream for your organization, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. And spoiler alert, look for some special announcements about some things I'm doing with Simon over the next couple months. Um, it's going to be very fun, very exciting. So visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. And until next time, thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.